You're listening to Give Me The Fear, the Britflix podcast Frightfest 2023 preview series. My name is Stuart Wright, and usually I host this show. But for this genre talent-filled build-up to the Woodstock Gore, I'm keeping stump. When this intro is done, this is the last you're going to hear from me until I ask you to tell your friends all about it. The spoiler-free interviews are brief, and across the entire series, you will discover the kind of knowledge and experience about how to make horror films that they just don't teach you at film school. Are you ready for that? After looking back at the blood, sweat and tears that went into their creative successes, I asked them one last question. If you could handpick one person to be in the audience, alive or dead, famous or personal to you, for your fright first screening, who would it be and why? I think you're going to love the answers this question elicits. I certainly do. That's my introduction over with. Let's hear from the talent. My name is Jenna Cannell, and I am the lead actor and writer of Faceless After Dark. Faceless After Dark is a meta horror about an actor who finds a little cult success and decides to take matters into their own hands. Something that you'd only know if you were on the inside of script development was that when I was working with my co-writer, Todd Jacobs, we had to delve into, because of the meta nature of the film, we delved into a lot of things that I've actually dealt with as an actor in a cult film and, and uh, as a you know, female presenting individual in the industry. And it took a lot of, you know, there was a lot of uh, unpacking of events and and deciding what we should use, what was too much and what we needed to expand on when we were writing. I mean, if, if you see the trailer for Faceless After Dark, there's kind of a, almost a, a joke uh, in it about writing what you know. And that's absolutely what we were going for, of writing what you know while expanding on it to make it a more exciting story. And... And one of the things that was fun when we were developing the script was finding the tone, because to me, it feels very much like a dark comedy. And to him, it felt more like a horror. To our director, he approached it as more of a, you know, more of a thriller. And finding the, the happy place of that tone was, was a challenging but fun tightrope walk. Something that I'm really proud of from the production of the film is that this is one of the most diverse crews I've been on. It was an indie film. And so it was a a small crew and a tight crew and everyone was wearing 3 million hats. But this is probably the most women I've ever seen on set. It was racially diverse. Everyone had different backgrounds in terms of their experience. And that made for a really, really cohesive team in a way that doesn't you don't always see on film in general, but especially on these indie films where you're really crunched for time and you're crunched for resources. And I'm really proud of, of the team that our director, Ray, assembled. I also did some producing on the film. I definitely helped a lot. I helped cast most of it. And, and I definitely helped bring on a lot of the team members as well. Some of it was just a happy accident because we're in Atlanta and Atlanta is an incredibly diverse market. Uh, 
And also, you know, we a lot of the people we hired were people we had worked with before. And some of it was intentional that I both really value inclusive sets and feel that the best stories are told because, as you know, this is a team sport. It's a collaborative medium and and stories are best told when, you know, when you have a, a lot of different perspectives bringing something to the table. Because obviously I co-wrote it and it was one thing when we wrote it. But then, you know, they say you make three movies, the movie you write, the movie you shoot, and the movie you edit. And once it's off the page, it's not just yours anymore. And that's terrifying, but it's also really beautiful because then you have all these other people helping mold it, you know? And so in a way it was intentional um, because yeah, inclusivity is really uh, important to both of us. And the movie, it follows a female presenting person, but it's also, it's also a queer story in a way. It's a, it's it kind of, uh, you know, in a way faceless after dark is a little bit of a, a queer horror and there were, of queer people on set and and I think everyone enjoys making something more when we feel like we have some sense of agency in it even if you're doing makeup if you're doing catering everyone should have a sense of ownership and I think that Ray and I both feel that strongly obviously he still always had a very strong vision for what he wanted and we didn't always agree, which is, you know, good because it's it's important that that he maintained exactly what he envisioned from the moment that he asked uh, me to write it. But at the same time, he was open to ideas and and definitely valued everyone's what everybody brought. I was involved in a little bit of post production, not too too much because I, given that it's my my face is all over the damn thing, which is <laughs> very cool and great. But at the same time, it makes it a little harder to be biased. And also at the same time, Ray and I have, you know, I do direct as well, but Ray and I have very different tastes as directors. And I obviously wanted to offer what I could that would help in terms of the writing aspect and the creative aspect, but I didn't want to step on his toes in terms of what he was going for. But that being said, he definitely came to me a couple times in post-production. Like I tried not to be too involved, but he would come to me with, a, you know, at, at different stages of the editing process, essentially to say, uh, you know, because I have a ton of experience in horror and I'm also a huge fan of horror and watch a lot of horror movies and have been in a bunch of horror movies. And so he would come to me and and kind of try to get my eye on, you know, does this part work? Do we need more of this or that? And uh, I wasn't crazy involved in the post-production, but he did get my input at a number of stages in terms of the edit, which I which was I thought was great. And I really appreciated that I was roped in on that aspect of it. Because when you're editing a film, it's so, and I know this from experience, when your eyeballs deepen it, it's so hard to see what you're looking at after a certain point, you know? If I had to pick one person to be in the audience for our Fright Fest premiere of Faceless After Dark, it would make me incredibly anxious and I would probably uh, need some sort of, um, it would make me incredibly nervous um, and it would put way too much pressure on me. But I would love to have Jordan Peele in the audience because I just love the films he creates I want to work with him so badly one day. I just think he has such an interesting perspective and such an interesting mind and such a such a valuable approach to 
horror and existential dread. And it, that's a perspective that I would love to have. I'm Sabina Forsyth, and I play Claire in The Moor. Hi, and I'm Chris Cronin. I'm the director. The Moor is a mystery horror film based around the auction moors. Uh, Claire is approached by the father of murdered uh, childhood friend of hers uh, to help her investigate the haunted moor because he thinks that's where his son's final resting place is, and that's where the film starts. Well, one memory actually popped into my mind straight away when I read this question, and I've never experienced before, and I probably won't in the future. It was shooting a scene outside, me and David, and there were just flies everywhere, like little midges, but to the point where you couldn't really sort of like inhale properly or like sort of blink properly, and we were like battling through it, and it was just, I felt like it was a moment where I thought, this is just, this is mental. And what is this going to look like? And are we doing a good job? And then when I watched it in the film, I was like, gosh, you're so proud of us. They are actors in it. And also whatever you did in post, Chris, to make it look like there were no flies there. But um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed shooting that film. It was like actually shooting that scene. So again, I thoroughly enjoyed shooting that scene because it was a challenge. And then I, enjoyed watching it because you saw no flies i think that's probably probably some of the best acting in the film just because you had to pretend there was no flies crawling around your ears so <laughs> so there's literally between takes so the editing is masterful there because they'll be like proper in character totally zoning their intention and then like slapping themselves <laughs> and then carrying on in and it's seamless but yeah we, there was thousands of midges that in that shoot and we thought we were gonna have to scrap it or do some real digital enhancement, but as soon as we color graded it, eight, like 90% of the midges disappeared. So uh, yeah, no magic here, just you guys keeping a straight place and seeing yeah. it. Well, that's amazing, honestly. Yeah. That it looks that good, yeah. I forgot all about that. Obviously we were terrified about the footage on the day. Now I don't think about it anymore. Well, I remember it was basically a treatment when I got it. So I read it as a treatment. Um, and what really appealed to me was it was based in my home county of Yorkshire, which is quite unusual. I'm always thinking of far off places and how to bring it to Yorkshire and how can I interpret it in, in my home county to make it a bit unique. But this was already embedded in the material. And it was the ending. The ending of the film was so striking. It made me nervous. And I was like, oh. And I heard a famous quote from a director that says, if the film makes you nervous, you should do it because it means somebody probably hasn't done it yet. So based in Yorkshire, a horror film ending made me nervous. I'm like, I'm in. And then it was basically developing it from there. So we went from a treatment to a script and it was in the treatment completely found footage. Uh, even though I respect that genre, it's not my personal strongest genre to create. So it was all about how do we maintain the, uh, the found footage elements, but also tell it through a lens that I can tell it. So it was because, you know, found footage is, is its own genre, man. And uh, I was uh, I, I was like, I want to delve into that. I don't want to completely live in it. And so I really liked the last, say, nine minutes of the movie where we completely live in it. But um, yeah, it was it was all from the treatment, really. The rain in the moors was intense. Or just generally the moors. It was it was hard work. It really was. Mm -hmm. And there were moments where, you know, we weren't quite enjoying ourselves because we were wet and, and cold and 
and you know not only were we trying to get into these mindsets of these this like horrible stuff that was happening it just generally wasn't very nice conditions to film in sometimes but I know Chris you've said actually that I think that you know the moment that I'm talking about when it was like really really raining but as we've spoken about actually it just adds to it yeah um it's Hollywood effects for free essentially yeah yeah like I I think I know what uh, Sophia's talking about there was a shot where it's just a, a single take uh, Claire and Bill are walking with the backdrop of the moor behind them. It's miserable weather. And it looked good. It just looked good. And we got two coverage side shots. They were getting into the flow of it. We were trying not to trip over and fall off on the floor. You know, the fact that the cameraman and the sound guy didn't disappear down a groff was a miracle in itself, never mind the actors. And they did about three takes each, and then we got coverage, that kind of thing. And then the heavens opened up, as it does on the moor, just randomly. And the mist set in the background. And I just looked around and went, this looks like I'm better. And everybody's like, run for cover. And I went, I want to do it all again. And everybody had a little bit of a word with me. And then we did it again. And it's probably my favorite <laughs> shot in the movie. So <laughs> it was just the, it, the dry shots were just a, a dry run for the, the, the atmospheric footage that we actually captured in the end for that sequence. One of my favorite sequences is just unedited Sophia and David in the elements, you know in it, feeling it. You can feel like you're on the moor with them then. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's one of my favourite scenes. The challenges were consistency and continuity because of uh, there's a line in the film that goes, it's the con- inconsistency in the air pressure and it feels like a saving line but it's actually just the truth. Like, the moor is its own, it's its own environment. So, you know, schedules would change on a dime just because the mist was rolling in and we wanted to capture it. So um, we would be shooting a scene for a couple of hours and you'd have three different weather conditions. And so post-production was really trying to play around like, how do we make this feel like this was all in one moment and not spread it across a couple of days and stuff like that? That was quite challenging. And then it was also about, um, it was just really interesting. Sophia and David, and just because you're here as well, I'm not saying just because you're here, but the, the performances are so good that I was just so careful with trying to make sure that their emotional journeys were consistent throughout because it's very character-led, this piece. And if you felt like they went too hard on the emotion or too far back, you just lose that journey a little bit because they do go through a change. They go in different directions as the film progresses from each other. So that was a challenge. And then just making sure the found footage didn't feel so out of place uh, when it did show up we wanted to make sure it, it was like effective when it rocked up and it wasn't just jarring it was just it was meant to always be there do you know what i mean my nonno my granddad um he's dead but i know how buzzing he would be to see me on a big cinema screen There's, i've got a bail answer it's william freakin and it's it is a bail answer because he's just recently passed he's probably one of the most influential men on horror and I'd be curious to see what he thinks of some of the elements of the movie where we do the genre change and we do the format change. And I wonder if he'd be like, oh, this is brilliant or this is disrespecting the genre. I'd be, I'd be very curious. I think he's one person that wouldn't be shy to share his opinion on it. Hi, my name is Joe Lynch, and I'm the director and executive producer of the film that you're about to see, or hopefully we'll see someday, Suitable Flesh. Suitable Flesh, based on the H.P. Lovecraft's short story of The Thing on the Doorstep, is 
best way to describe it is an erotic body swap, cosmic horror, phantasmagoria, Gulia base. That's also a love letter to one of uh, my favorite filmmakers, Stuart Gordon, and the films that he had made in the past from Beyond, Reanimator, Dagon, and the like. Um, it follows the trials and tribulations of a very successful psychologist who haphazardly meets uh, a new patient and finds out that they have a, uh, a lot in common, but also a lot of differences. And next thing you know, there's a lot of body swapping, there's a lot of fluid swapping, and then there's a lot of bloodletting. I think the, one of the most significant things about becoming part of this production is knowing right off the bat, since I've been a fan of Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli and Brian Usman and Barbara Crampton, who were kind of in this um, family of Lovecraft adaptations over the years, I was a fan already. So when I got an email about six weeks into the pandemic from Barbara, uh, which anytime that you get a, an email from Barbara Crampton, you open it immediately, uh, asking me if I was interested in possibly adapting uh, the thing on the doorstep, which is what it was called at the time. And I was uh, very much intrigued, but I I've had this situation happen to me before where you know I have a lot of heroes and Stuart being one of them. And when, unfortunately, when they, you know, pass off onto this mortal coil, uh, sometimes I get the opportunity to find out more about the project, whether I'm involved uh, inherently or not. But in this case, it was directly, do you or would you be interested in directing this film? And I had already known about it because I had talked to Stuart about it over the years when I would um, go to the Masters of Horror dinners and we would sit together and, you know, we would just kind of shoot the shit and chew the fat. And he was talking about this project and I went, oh my God, that'd be great to see you and Dennis and Brian and Barbara kind of coming back into the fray, you know, just like old times. That as a fan, that got me really excited. But now here's this dangling cosmic carrot of, would you be interested in directing? And at first I thought it was a bit of a prank, to be fair. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, Barbara reconfirmed that, no, no, um, when... Dennis and Stuart were talking about the making of this movie. And when Stuart kind of, I guess, saw his days numbered, if you will, um, kind of made a list of some of the directors that uh, he was interested in taking on the project. And I like to joke that I was, after they had asked all the other filmmakers, they kind of got down to me. That's my MO usually. But uh, no, but, but Barbara kept saying, like, Stuart really felt strongly about at least seeing what you would do with the material. So... I'll never forget the 24 hours between getting that email and then you know, getting the script. And, and again, this is in the pandemic time. So I was kind of sequestered to my home and my writing partner was, you know, uh, was in another country at the time. And we were kind of going back and forth on these ideas. And both of us were huge Stuart Gordon fans. So I sent it to her. We started reading it. And immediately, without even kind of hinting at each other's notes, we both came back with this idea that like, what if we tried something different, the, the way that we approached the story, because if you know the story, uh, it is a very male gazed, very male centric uh, telling of what happens uh, to these two main characters, um, Edward and, um, and Daniel. And we felt, what if we swapped genders and not just to be progressive not just to do the whole like you know like oh this will be cool in this day and age and this new purview of how you know you can gender swap uh kind of um 
a more male centric thing into female and then see what happens. Like watch out dirty rotten scandals with chicks or leave the weapon with girls. This was something that was almost kind of inspired by how filmmakers that we loved, like Stuart Gordon, like um, Paul Verhoeven, like Claire Denis would, um, would want to kind of um, twist the screws a little bit or do things that felt a little dangerous. And at this time and this age, being able to tell this story with these characters in a, in a kind of new point of view felt so much more exciting to me, felt so much more provocative and dangerous in all the best ways without being exploitative. And both of us came up with this note session that was so exciting to when we were swapping it back and forth going, oh my God, this is so crazy. You know what? They'll never go for it. And lo and behold, we sent the the note, like um, my partner Becca came up with this, you know, like this whole notes um, dossier, like a docket, if you will, that was all of our ideas all put together with the idea that this was probably not going to go, that they were going to say, great guys, thanks a lot. We're going to go to Adam Green. Uh, and shockingly, um, both Barbara and Dennis came back and said, that's a really intriguing idea. Give 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 Dennis a couple weeks, you know. But he, like we like the idea, and a couple weeks later, got got another email, and it was this new version of the script. And it wasn't like he had just changed the names and you know went into final draft and started just kind of fucking with the names. There was it it dove deeper into a lot of the thematics of gender and sexual identity and obsession and especially since you know one of the first things that came up was well what's the age of um elizabeth derby for example and what's the age of um uh of, Dan of daniela her best friend and i kept saying from, right from the get-go <clears throat> we should if if michael douglas could play this character in his late 40s early 50s we should find someone who's in their late 40s or early 50s too because there are the same amount of desires and obsessions and consequences that come with those why not you know like a lot of times it's always well if it's a female then we should make it someone who's in their like late 20s or something and i'm like no i'm like not late 20s like that that doesn't make sense if she's a psychologist and a successful one at that it runs into the issue that i know that stewart ran into back in the from beyond days when Catherine mcmasters who barbara played was kind of criticized for being too young you know, and also too beautiful, which makes no fucking sense. So that that was something that we very early on said to ourselves, we wanted to really hang our hats on that idea. And everyone was very much excited about that idea. And then that's really what changed everything for the script, to the casting, to the production itself. It, it really, that was the impetus. And that was the seed that we planted that changed everything all the way down to the title being you know going from the thing on the doorstep to suitable flesh it just made it so much more exciting as a fan and it also helped me with this thing that brian usna told me way back when when we when we first met right before we shot um i kept asking him like just things about Stuart and advice and he, he kept saying to me over a, a plate of nachos just just ask yourself what would Stuart do and every decision inform that what was in what was great about that though was that it also reminded me well what would i do and they were very much always co-joined you know from the casting to the script to the this is your invitation to a master class in engineering and design your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the lexus performance line a feeling this dynamic is invite only fortunately you're invited 
Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Production to the editing, to the music. It felt like Stuart and I were very much in sync, even if it was, you know, from beyond the grave. One of the things that I was really excited about <clears throat> after we had gotten the script to a really good place was that one thing that I had never done before, and I always, you know, since I started to be like with in terms of my filmography and my career, um, you know, I started off very much in the horror genre and the horror realm. And then, um, you know, like between Everly and, and Mayhem started to kind of create a hybrid of interests in terms of like horror and action or horror and comedy. Um, and then with uh, the movie that I did um, before this, Point Blank, it was more or less like a Walter Hill type action film, more or less. But I, I've, I mean, my heart is in horror. It always has been. It always will be. And I really wanted to find something that would bring me back to the, all the excitement that I would have when I was working in that genre specifically, um, you know, playing with those notes, playing with those brushstrokes. So when we got the script to a really good place, one of the things that we, um, in, you know, in the, the writing process and the development process was realizing that this isn't necessarily just an H.P. Lovecraft story. It's not just a cosmic body swap movie, so to speak, that has a lot of, you know, connections to Cthulhu. It's got a lot of ties to Miskatonic. Um, you know, I was very specific when we were doing the rewriting to tie it back into certain movies and certain characters and locations that we all know and love <clears throat> from the reanimated reanimator days and the Miskatonic days and from beyond. You know, so it definitely ties a lot of those films together. But I also was like really excited over the idea that as a filmmaker and a storyteller myself, I always want to kind of do something different. I, I don't like being trapped in uh, like a, I guess, what's the word? Um, I, I, uh, like a cliche of doing the same thing over and over again. I didn't want to be typecast. I hate that. Uh, I would rather be challenging myself as a storyteller to just try new things and try different subgenres. And I've never done anything in the psychological erotic thriller realm, you know? Um, and I, I was a product of the eighties and nineties where erotic thrillers were all the norm, you know, they were on HBO and Skinamax all the time. They were on video shelves, you know, they were part of our, um, they were part of our popular culture, everything from Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill in Body Double to Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day to obviously Paul Verhoeven's work in The Fourth Man or especially Basic Instinct. And then in the 90s, you know, there was this like explosion of Zalman King and Adrian Lyne and even David Lynch was getting into the game with stuff like Wild at Heart and Lost Highway. There's something very powerful about sexuality in films that has kind of been lost in the last couple of years. Um, and, and it was something that I... I, I honestly missed a lot. You know, I think these, you know, gone are the days where a lot of times people would, couples would go to the theater to get aroused or, you know, get your rocks off, whether it was back in the seventies with going to see Deep Throat together or going to see Sliver, you know, at the multiplex. Um, those days kind of have waned a little bit because television has opened up the world for sexuality um, on camera. Um, Obviously, the, you know, the advent of internet porn has changed the game a lot, um, which means that now 
you are devoid of story and character. You're just kind of going right for the, the graphic money shots. And I got to admit, man, like I miss cinematic seduction. I miss those days where, you know, you could, as long as it was indicative to the story and to character and not just throw Michael Bean and Patsy Kensett in the middle of a, a like a, a, an espionage sci-fi chase thriller and then put them in a hotel room and have them bang. That aside, if the story is shaped and forwarded by sexuality and sex, then all the better. So that was something that we realized very quickly when we were kind of in the development of the script, but also when it came down to the execution that I, re- I wanted to make this movie sexy. I wanted to make it feel like it was a 90s erotic thriller that would, you know, have people like Shannon Tweed on the cover and um, and then have those films. Be, and those films have a very specific aesthetic to them. So being able to take the, the spirit of what Stuart Gordon and to that, I mean, Stuart is also, you know, a, a prognosticator of provocation. He know, like he knew how to push people's buttons, not just with violence, but also with humor and with sexuality. And I thought, like, there's my perfect starting off point. But when you see the movie, um, you'll definitely very quickly, stylistically see that we're taking grace notes from Brian De Palma with stuff like split screens and split diopters and, you know, provocation from, say, like Abel Ferrara when he was in his 80s days with, like, everything from King of New York to, um, you know, China Girl to Adrian Lyne and Paul Verhoeven, like, all these filmmakers that... Um, really were never afraid to get sexy and to get erotic. So that really informed a lot of how we shot the film, uh, how we specifically lensed certain scenes, how we executed certain um, transitions in and out of scenes, um, how we lit some of the actors, how we clothed them, you know, like by having those as our, um, as our influence points, it definitely informed everything in production from the moment we stepped on set to the moment I finished the last cut, everything was kind of coming from those states of mind while also being able to kind of do my own thing as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the pressure of having a lot of um, filmmakers of past and present kind of influencing the film uh, was exciting, but it was also really daunting too, because, you know, what we're, what we're presenting is something that, you know, even down to using a sexy saxophone in the soundtrack, um, and, and the way that we did the, the score that was done by Steve Moore, who's never done anything like this before, but we were going for, you know, if Bernard Herman and Pino Donaggio had sex, then there was a sax guy in the background. That was kind of the vibe we were getting. Everything was going for cinematic seduction. And, you know, I, if anything, I wanted to take Lovecraft and turn it more into Lustcraft, if you will. I mean, one of one of the biggest challenges for making this film was that most people, at least these days when they're booking gigs, and I'm talking about like actors and DPs and stuff like that, they're not used to having, oh, wow, there's sex in this. You know, a lot of times lately it's um, either been written out of the script or not even talked about at all or seen off camera. Um, intimacy has been so much of like a part of cinema for decades. And then all of a sudden it kind of dried up, if you will, no pun. Um, but we, we wanted to, we wanted to get moist again, if you will. So that's where complete and, and in these days of the me too era and making sure that, um, everyone is completely on the same page. 
um, right from the, the moment that we started even talking to actors and actresses about being part of this, um, I started very, very directly and distinctly detailing everything and how I was going to shoot it from, you know, the 32 page legal documents telling everyone how I was going to shoot it to storyboards, storyboarding out every single shot. The key to this is consent and communication. I didn't have any meetings with any actor without them fully reading the script. I like I even said, like, I don't want anyone who's you know going to be doing a Zoom with me or meeting with me to go into this having not read the script because I don't want to waste anybody's time, including myself. So everybody who I talked to, including Heather and Judah um, and Jonathan Sheck and Bruce, um, Barbara was obviously involved from a producing standpoint, but she came on later uh, to take on that role. But she was very aware of it. And you know, she's, you know, been in these situations before, as have most of the actors as well. Um, that I needed to be incredibly upfront and not in a douchey sort of way, more just of a, you know, look, this is the movie we're making. And, you know, I and I'm putting out all the reasons why I think it's really important that we make this film sexy and we make this film erotic because the choices that some of these characters make you need as an audience member to put yourself in the shoes of elizabeth derby for example heather's character you need to see why she would make the decisions that she's making and if you don't show sex in a way that feels like well you know here's this person who's having sex with someone who she's had sex with you know her husband for years and then suddenly she's starting to have fantasies about this patient of hers you need to personify that visually performance wise like you need to because the story is essentially being told from her point of view and she's trying to relay that to her best friend while in a padded cell at Miskatonic University you need to convey this so we need to make it sexy so have every conversation we've had you know from the moment that we were talking to a lot of these actors all the way up to the moment when we were shooting it and even after was all about comfortability and consent and making sure that all those actors were on the same page. And thankfully, every one of them got it. Every one of them was, you know, very comfortable. Everyone made each other comfortable in it because, you know, there's nothing worse. I think all of us can agree, you know, there's nothing worse than being in a sexual situation where the other the partner of yours is not into it or not give consent. And that's a big no-no, obviously. So we wanted to make sure that these situations were because they're only going to get sexier if you know that the you know the people involved are into it down to the camera people. I I had conversations and I had meetings with the like with the camera operators who were on set. One of which um, was a female camera operator who I specifically asked for so that if at the very least on a surface level, um, you know the actors would know that it wasn't just two leering dudes in the background, you know, shooting stuff like a bunch of talkers. Like all of us had these conversations from from the get go to make sure that. Everybody knows. Everybody's aware of what we're going for. We're not trying to like, and we've all heard the horror stories of like, yes, we have a close set, but then all of a sudden a producer shows up and is like, oh, where's it's like none of that was on the set at all. And lo and behold, we had um, some of the best days I've ever shot on scenes that otherwise in previous films, whenever I've had sexual situations in other films that I've had, you know, I've always been incredibly nervous and very embarrassed that i'm even there i'm like oh should i be watching this this is so crazy you know like not in a goofy sort of way but like i don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable so it, like for me it was just a matter of making sure everybody was was chill and comfortable and 
feeling the vibes. You know, we would try to do you know everything we could to kind of make everybody feel comfortable. And you know, from number one on the call sheet, Heather, all the way down to any other person that was on that very close set, everybody was in sync with what exactly what we were doing. And I think that can be displayed on screen. One of the big exciting challenges with this, and from a post-production standpoint, was that you know we didn't have a lot of time uh, to make the film uh, for uh, both budgetary reasons and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it was it's a, it's a low-budget film, but what that granted was that gave me a lot of creative freedom too. Um, so, but we just didn't have a lot of time and a lot of resources. Thankfully, um, my my co-editor was also on set whenever we would be shooting stuff, I would get reports back from them saying like, oh, did you get this? Did you get that? You know, like, oh, maybe if you got a shot of the fan, that would really help. So as a pro tip to other filmmakers, the more that you can integrate your editor, um, when it's not, if it's not just going to be yourself, because I also co-edited the film, um, whenever you can strive to have the editor as involved from the jump, even even before you start shooting, the better because then you're going to be able to leave that location we shot in Mississippi. We weren't going to be able to come back ever. Like there wasn't like a oh we have a budget for additional days of shooting. This isn't a Marvel movie, you know. So that that was never going to happen. So if there was any pickups that we had to do, um, we would have to do it back in L.A. Um, and shockingly, the only shot that we had to um, not even just reshoot but pre-shoot was of and I don't want to give too much away but there is a very famous iconic location that you've seen in other movies around this <laughs> miskatonic verse that um I had just happened to realize was in my near vicinity so I just on my iPhone shot it thinking like oh you know what we'll come back here and we'll shoot this after when we got back we did not have the resources to do that so luckily, I had that shot that I had shot before we left for Mississippi on my iPhone, dropped it into Premiere Pro, and boom, I put some letterboxing on it. You'd never know the difference. So there, and, and who, but that was otherwise, it was making sure that we left that location with as with everything that we needed shot, you know, and of course things got dropped here and there, but for the most part, like I, that's what made it a very, like a big challenge was I kind of knew from the jump that we were not going to be able to return. So being able to have editing going on concurrently, concurrently with the shoot ensured that I was able to say like on the final day of our shoot, for example, when we had like one of the longest days of the shoot because we couldn't come back and we were going to lose our actors. And this one shot just kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And it's a shot as innocuous as it's, curtains going on fire right they should have been shot on location we couldn't do it then it got kept getting bumped and bumped and bumped and bumped and then on the last day it was this has to be the last shot because i guarantee you we will not shoot this when i'm back in la unless i'm going to your produce like the producer's house and lighting their house on fire not happening so that's if i didn't know that i probably would have punted it and said oh we'll get it later but we couldn't so we knew that we had to leave that location with everything finished what I discovered in when we were in post was that, you know, for all the best intentions that you have when you're coming up with all the planning that you could think of, you know, every shot, 
you know, I, I unfortunately took a cue years ago from like M. Night Shyamalan or even Hitchcock when they would say, well, whenever I walk on set, I know exactly what I'm shooting. You know, everything's cut in camera beforehand and I'm an editor myself. And so I thought, well, fuck, I have to do that too. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to ha- think that I had to have everything completely pre-cut, so to speak. And that's one thing that I always love in movies too, when you can see that the filmmakers are thinking ahead about like transitional scenes and like things cutting from one thing to another. And there feels like there is a rhythm to it. It's not just like chop, 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 chop. There's a rhyme and a reason for every moment in a scene and out of a scene. I appreciate that. And I know other people do as well. And we do a lot of that in this film. Um, But you also have to relinquish those pressures because sometimes a shot that your B camera got, we had two cameras on at all times. Sometimes a B camera shot just got the better moment or they got a moment that maybe the focus puller wasn't on their game at that moment, but you went, doesn't matter. That acting moment is right there. Her eyes are looking at him and that makes total sense. Or we ran out of time on this one moment and I'm not going to give anything away, but there's, there's these two moments that I am specifically so proud of from a horror movie standpoint. Um, and I like to lovingly call them the smashing and the stabbing. And you'll know it when you see it. But one of those moments, the smashing, was something that um, I had been wanting to do for almost 15 years now in terms of like executing this certain moment, right? Um, and it's not in, it was not in the original script. And I kind of put it in thinking, hey, if we can do this, this would be amazing. And I think it'd be very iconic and it would work really well. And that was a moment that like, I needed to know exactly what I needed because there were no cuts. There were no, you know, compromises in terms of how it was executed. If it didn't work, it, it was never going to work. But because we spent so much time on that moment, we were running out of light and we only had this one location for maybe another hour. And I had, um, a, like maybe, six or seven more setups for the stabbing moment, which again, you'll know when, when you see it. And I ultimately could pull off two. And it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. It was the moment that, um, you know, that scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure when he's running inside the pet store and would like run past the snakes and go, oh, and then run away. And then he'd come back and be like, oh, I'm going to get to that. No, no, no. I was always putting that moment off. And I was terrified because I'm like, I don't have the coverage for it. The only thing that I thought of at the time that I was so lucky that I did was that, um, you know, again, there is a moment with stabbing, right? And uh, for all you filmmakers out there, pro tip, if you ever have someone stabbing something or someone, especially if it's a body part, always have a watermelon at hand. And this is something I learned from my trauma days is for some reason, watermelon can sustain um, the integrity of something getting stabbed on it. That feels very much like flesh and bone. And I just, because we had done something similar a couple nights ago, I'm like, you know what, just in case I'm going to have a watermelon just to, like in my car, you never know when you're going to need it. And thank fucking God I did because we had this, we, we were chasing the light. It, we had 30 minutes left. I got one shot off and I'm like, I'm, I'm never going to get this. And I ran to my car, grabbed the watermelon, put it down and said, stab this. And thank God, because not only does it give you some good pull, right? But if you stab it a watermelon enough, 
red gook is going to fly up in the air and that's what you'll see, right? But again, two angles. That was it. And I was terrified. And, you know, after, a, you know, going back and forth on how we can approach this moment, my, my co-editor said, leave the room, just get out. I was like, okay, fine. And I left, came back in an hour and they had figured out a way that made that situation work so fucking brilliantly. To me, it's like, it's the perfect Jallo moment. And again, I think for you, Jolly fans out there, you'll know when you see what we did. But that's something that was never planned. It was never in the construct in my head. And as a director, you always have a, a, a kind of a predetermined idea of exactly what's going to be on that screen as much as you can. And you want the control over it. But sometimes you have to let go of that control because someone else is going to have a better idea and it's only going to make the movie better. And those two moments together are like the symbiosis of our collaboration together because one is something that is so controlled that we would have never been able to get otherwise if we didn't have the you know like the, the, the wherewithal to kind of come up with something in like a wonder, if you will. And the other one is a pure melange of edit mayhem. I think it's a forlorn conclusion who I would pick if I wanted to have one person alive or dead at that Fright Fest screening. Uh, and that would be Stuart Gordon, uh, 100%. Like his spirit hovered over this entire production from the moment I got that email to every screening that we've done ever since. The film is dedicated to him. Uh, little hint, if you're in the audience, stay to the very last moment. You'll get a nice chuckle out of it. Um, but Stuart was um, one of my inspirations, one of my heroes. Um, I, can, you know, I was honored enough to call him a friend. Um, the fact that he thought about me before he died to kind of take on the reins for this script. Um, it's one of the biggest heartbreaks that I, you know, I could never possibly show him the, 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 uh, the bloody fruits of our, uh, of our spoils, so to speak, to be able to show him that, you know, he did mean so much to so many people on the stage, on the big screen, on the small screen. That's why we had so many actors who show up in the film uh, in like Easter eggs, some company people from his other productions, everything from Reanimator the Musical to King of the Ants to um, to obviously his you know his other films. They showed up for um, I don't want to give too much away, but they showed up to do it for basically nothing, and that's a testament to Stuart Gordon. So if there was anybody who I want to have a seat, you know, and I hope that anybody from Fried Fest knows, like they should keep a seat open and put reserved for the maestro Stuart Gordon, because if anyone's going to enjoy that, seeing it on that huge screen and giggle the entire time, it's going to be him. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with at least one friend. Put a link out on social media, rate and review it for your preferred podcast platform. Put an ad in Lou, novel the town crier, whisper in the ear of the town gossip. You get the picture. It all helps bring new people into the Britflix podcast fold. Thank you.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.